On this episode of A Voice from the Hills podcast, we welcome Dr. Daniel Crosby. Dr. Dan is Chief Behavioral Officer at Orion Advisor Solutions, and he's one of the leading behavioral finance experts in our industry. His published works include The Behavioral Investor, Laws of Wealth, Personal Benchmark, and aptly titled and courageously titled, You're Not That Great, as well as a a separate title that we'll talk about, but it's a bonus. You got to listen to the pod to hear it. We're going to talk about the importance of education, environment, and encouragement as we all try to overcome the financial limitations that our own behavior can provide us. And I think you're going to find it an excellent conversation and one one worthy of spending some time listening to. So without further ado, we'd like to welcome Dr. Daniel Crosby. James Warner is the founding partner of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by James, his co-host, and guest are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Silicon Hills Wealth Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Hey, good afternoon, Dr. Crosby, and thank you for joining us. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, James. Yeah, you know, I thought we'd start with sharing with our audience how how you kind of chose a career in behavioral science. Did it choose you or did you choose that career? Yeah, a little little of both. So um, I am the son of a financial advisor. So I went to my freshman year of college thinking that I would probably be on that track as well. So I entered as, you know, sort of a a business major as much as you enter as anything at, at 18 years old. And Um, But I took a lot of psychology courses for my general ed classes, and I just absolutely fell in love with them. And I found myself just sort of orienting to that really hard. And then when I was 19, I served a two-year mission for my church. And so, you know, after two years of living on the other side of the world, I lived in the Philippines for two years. Um, after living in two for two years on the other side of the world, observing a different culture, trying to help people get their lives on track. I was sort of more invested than ever in a a field in the human sciences. And I think the combination of those two things really, really sealed it for me. So that that initial love uh, paired with the real world experience of living in a different culture and trying to help people, I think, are what tipped it for me. Wow. So you actually you actually married your passion with your your original grooming, huh? Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah. So, I mean, just to kind of fast forward a bit, you know, I graduated when I was 23 and I started my PhD program three days later. And so by the time I was 25 or 26, I was, you know, about halfway done with my PhD and doing a lot of counseling and I just didn't like it anymore. You know, I just didn't, I didn't like it was, I was bringing work home with me. It was like, you know, 40 or 50 hours a week of talking to people who were in really acute distress. And I just had poor boundaries and sort of empathy fatigue. And so I came to my dad and I said, look, I, I love psychology. I love thinking deeply about why people do the things that they do, but I don't think I can do it in a medical setting. And he said, well, you know, there's a ton of psychology in, in my business. And I mean, I was like, what are you talking about? I mean, you know, this was, <laughs> you know, I, I had always sort of thought of my dad as a numbers guy and like, 
you know, sort of like one part stock picker, one part sales guy. And, you know, I was like, what are you talking about psychology in your business? And so to make a long story short, that was sort of the conversation that set me on the path that would eventually take me to your podcast today. Wow. Well, that's really cool. That's a good story. So I, I thought we'd start with, you know, one of your earlier works and it's courageously titled. I love the title. It's titled, You're Not That Great. And uh, within the book, you talk about uh, living life is ultimately about realizing that, you know, the less that you need to be special, the more special you can become. I, I love that quote. And I, I, I was hoping you could unpack that a little bit for the audience. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to unpack it a bit. And the book is actually was was written on the strength of a TEDx talk I did. So I, I gave it I was asked to give a TEDx talk. Um, you know, I was probably like 29 years old or something. And I got asked to give this TEDx talk about psychology. And I was like, okay, what am I going to talk about? And I started thinking about sort of like, you know, this, I believe I'm like, what, what are the, what are the things that I believe fervently? And all of them sort of had this core of, you know, it's only by embracing our own mediocrity that we're ever really kind of truly special. So the, the talk in the book are about this thing. So there's this, there's this vast body of research about, you know, things like self-esteem. So, you know, I grew up in this generation where everyone gets a trophy and everyone gets a gold star kind of thing. And the research around self-esteem says that stuff doesn't work. Like, you know, the way for you to feel good about yourself is surprise, surprise to do hard things, uh, take risks, get your teeth kicked in sometimes, but then to come out the other side and, you know, work hard and build something great. You think about um, things like being a great investor, you know, being a great investor takes owning that you're as susceptible to bias and emotion and self-deception as the next person. There was a lot of research around ethics and morals. And if you want to be sort of a person of character, we found that people who think of themselves as special or different or unique will do anything to keep that crown of specialness, even if it requires whatever, lying, cheating, stealing, to sort of maintain that. And there's also great research that shows that people who think they're special just don't work as hard. Um, you know, the minute yeah. life gets tough, they go, wait a minute, like, I'm, you know, I'm God's chosen son. Like, why, why isn't this going my way? Like, I give up, you know. And so uh, there's just a ton of research to show that embracing your own fallibility and quirkiness and weirdness and and mediocrity is actually the way to have a really great life. And you talk about in, in, in one of your books and it, and, and I'm kind of a fan, so I've, I've read all but one of them and I found out about that one while I was researching you. So I got to get, I got to get a hold of that one. But the, you talked about, you know, our, as humans, occasionally we, we ease very easily into autopilot. And it's not that we're bad people. We just kind of let life live us. And when we allow our, our minds to take control, our minds are really good at preserving the status quo. They love to embrace mediocrity. What's the science behind that? Cause I've seen that happen in practice. I, I don't know what the science is and how do we break free of that unconscious limitation? So there's actually a, a, a 
a lot of angles at which you could approach the science behind this. Um, you know, one thing is just we like we like the devil that we know. You know, from my book, I did research into things like uh, adult children of alcoholics. So you look at something like alcoholism, which is the cause of so much pain and suffering, you know, everything from spousal abuse to child abuse to domestic violence to automobile accidents. I mean, there's so much bad that comes out of substance abuse. And yet a slight majority of, of adult children of alcoholics marry alcoholics themselves. And you would you would think you would think that if anyone were to run far away from someone with a drinking problem, it would be someone who had a front row seat to to the evils that that a bad drinking problem can can bring to your life. And yet we know that people prefer the devil that they know because we we have developed coping mechanisms and, and life scripts and lifestyles that correspond with even really bad stuff. And people dislike uncertainty, even if it's a positive, if, if it's a positive uncertainty. So there's this great, there's this great study that looked at people who are scared of needles, like scared of shots. And they're, they're divided into two groups or they can, they can choose one of two options, I guess. And so in option A, you get a big old shot right? Like a big old hypodermic needle, biggest ever. <laughs> and then in option, in option B, you can spin the wheel of fortune and you'll either get a little shot, a medium shot, or the same giant shot. Now you'd think if you're scared of long needles, the rational thing to do is to spin the wheel of fortune and you have a two thirds chance of not getting the biggest needle. But yet overwhelmingly people just get it over with and say, give me the big needle. Like, you know, wow. I'd, I'd rather I'd rather have bad news than uncertain news. And so that that preference for certainty, even negative certainty, is one of the things that keeps us, you know, sort of locked into the status quo. Uh, the the other thing is just you have to think about how your brain works. Um, your brain is small. You know, it's like two to three percent of your body weight but it accounts for nearly a quarter of your caloric expenditure in a day of your metabolic spend and so it's really expensive to be creative and contrarian and pathbreaking and to do different things and it's really metabolically inexpensive to just get up punch the clock do what the people around you are doing parrot the same stupid talking points you see on the news at night and kind of and kind of sleepwalk through life um you know punctuated by your by your hungry man tv dinner and your favorite programs right i mean it's just really easy to do you're just kind of set up for that and we have to we really have to sort of rage against our wiring if we're to do that and we have to open ourselves up to new experiences and take the path less chosen, and it's not easy to do. We're not we're not wired for it. It takes volition and effort. Yeah, I think uh, most people refer to brains kind of in the lines of supercomputers. And I think in, in one of your works, you talked about that the human brain has much more in common with beer goggles than it does with a, a supercomputer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how do we? And and I I, I I totally understand how the the brain can sometimes create that warped sense of reality, and then we 
we follow that warped sense of reality as if it was the actual reality and we make decisions based on it. And even when we know that it's, it's kind of hard to counteract it. How, how do we fight that? So, you know, I think there's at least, at least three things that we need to do. And the first thing I think you just outlined there nicely, we need to understand that these are beer goggles, right? Like we need to understand that what comes easy to us is not necessarily what is good for us. So we need education, right? Is this, this first piece we need, we need to understand how our brains work, how we're wired, our own personalities, such that we can perceive the world as it truly is and not just as it most sort of easily is to our minds. Uh, the second thing is we need to put ourselves in the right environments. You know, this is like something I pound the table on so hard. It's most people are about as bad or as good as their surroundings. And that's like really, really hard for us to get our minds around. But, you know, all of us are steps away from doing really horribly stupid stuff, evil stuff, stupid stuff, ill-advised stuff, if we put ourselves in the wrong environment. And then on the flip side, none of us are that far from greatness if we put ourselves in the right situations and surround ourselves with the right people. And so we're like water or, you know, we, we take on the shape of the vessel we're near, right? We, we take on the shape of the environment we've placed ourselves in. So I think that environment's really important. And then, you know, the, the last piece, you know, I call this my three E's and I, it, it works for life and it, it, it also works for, for financial markets, but it's education, environment and encouragement, right? Um, the last piece is we need people in our lives who will call us on our, on our nonsense. Like we need people in our lives who will say, hey, Daniel, do better. Like, you know, you, you, you're not being all you could be right now. And so we need to educate ourselves. We need to put ourselves in the right places and around the right people. And then we need to surround ourselves with, with people and, and even ideas who will kind of push us back into line. And so our, our environment is, you know, our environment and the encouragement around us, I mean, I mean you, you can look at that and say bad environment and discouragement is, is something that's really hard to overcome. Right. Uh, no matter what, what talents you have, you, you said something else in uh, one of your writings or actually, I think all of them, you've kind of hinted at this, that, you know, as humans, we're just wired to act. I mean, we really want to take action and markets specifically. And there's, there's other situations uh, as well sometimes reward inaction over action. And so, so doing nothing can be good. It's also really hard for most of us to do nothing, especially if we're paying attention. And, and so how do we maintain that, you know, that diligence where, we're, where we feel like we're really staying on top of things, but at the same time, we don't let that diligence, you know, carry us in and, and create these, these unnecessary course corrections that we create for ourselves. Yeah, so the 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 tricky thing about capital markets is the rules of capital markets are a hunt are, are are diametrically opposed to the rules of of everyday life in in many respects. 
So, you know, if you want to get smarter, you read more books. Like if you want to get stronger, you lift more weight. You know, if you want to get faster, you run more miles. And then we know unequivocally from the research, if you want to get richer, you do nothing, right? You know, <laughs> you know? and it's so it's, it's easy to see how this flies in the face of our intuition. So let's go back to that three-part framework again, because I think it takes all three of these E's to adhere to something that feels so unnatural. So first of all, we got to educate ourselves that, that what I'm talking about is the case, right? This has been studied in 19 different countries. And we know that in 19 different countries, the more someone checks their account, the worse they do. And um, even more dramatically, the more they transact, the worse they do. So the more they sort of trade and get get in and out of the market. And it's, um, it's monotonic, right? So it's a fancy way of saying it's stepwise. You know, so the people who trade the most do, you know, do worse than the people who trade the middle and the people who trade the least do the best of all. So every, you know, sort of across every decile, the more you trade, <laughs> you do worse than the decile before you. And so we have to educate ourselves about the fact that this is counter to our wiring and that it's true. The next thing we need to do is to create the right environment. So this is um, this is kind of a dumb hack, but I'll share it anyway. I give the password to my brokerage account to my wife, and then I have her change it so I can't look at it. You know, because I know that if I look at it, I'll want to mess with it. And so I have to create an environment where I just literally can't allow myself to get sideways. Like I, if, if I get a paper statement, I rip it up and then I take pains to try not to give myself access to my electronic uh, accounts because I know that like, if it were up to me, I'd check my account 10 times a day and that tendency would lead me to some bad places. And so I try and create an environment that's conducive to that. And then finally, uh, on the encouragement front, I have an advisor, right? Like I work with, I pay, I pay my dad, right? <laughs> I, pay, I pay my dad to manage my money and to, to tell me all the things that I ought to be doing um, because I know that just because I've written three books about behavioral finance, does not mean that I am that great. It does not mean that I'm special or less emotional or more rational than the next person. And so I try and intervene at every one of those levels. I educate myself about the reality of it. I try and create an environment that's conducive uh, to, to acting in, in concert with my values. And then I get a coach in my corner to smack me, smack me when I want to do something wrong. Yeah, so you're creating the, those multiple fail safes mm. mm -hmm. to almost protect you from yourself, even though you're as equipped as almost anybody could be uh, to battle those demons head on. You realize that well, those demons aren't necessarily easily battled. Right? See, that's uh, that's the point, though. You know, um, there's this concept of the knowing doing gap. Like my favorite stat with this is that nurses. So doctors and nurses smoke at a higher rate than the American public. 
So <laughs> you, you think about this, right? Doctors and nurses who go to whatever, 12 years of school to tell us not to smoke, smoke themselves at a rate higher than the general population. And it just goes to show you that, you know, knowing what to do and doing the right thing are, are very different animals, right? For some like a third of people cheat on their spouse and none of them are like, oh yeah, like this is good. Like this, <laughs> this is what I should be doing. Um, it's tough, you know, it's tough. And you actually wrote a children's book. I didn't know about this until I uh, scheduled our podcast and started doing a little bit of uh, a little bit of legwork. And I, I got a hold of this. Everyone you love will die. Yeah. <laughs> and it is super cool. I mean, it's a little dark, but it, it really is cool. What was your aspiration for that book? I think I know, but I mean, can you? So the this is the funniest story, and I I actually appreciate you bringing it up. It's my it's my proudest. It's literally my proudest work. It's my it's the book that I've written that I'm most proud of, and I think is probably the most enduring, even though it's you know the shortest by <laughs> by quite a bit. So I have young children. They're you know getting older now, obviously, but. Um, I, I have young children and I had very young children at the time this was written. And my kids, like kids do, approach me with heavy questions. And so one of the one of the ways that I would try and uh, respond to them in a way that's connected with them and, and in a way that was a little bit more memorable than a typical dad lecture was I would write these poems, these kind of Shel Silverstein-esque poems yeah. about hard stuff right um and so you know i've written them when my kids had questions about gay marriage and i've written them when my kids had questions about bullying and you know being different and all these things and i you know i wrote one about death and um basically the the gist of the book is you know yes everyone you love will die but you're here today and so am i and it's like just trying to make the most of the moments we have and you know a great uh, a great philosopher was asked once what we could do to to live richer lives and he said spend more time in graveyards and i really am a believer in the stoic and the existential idea that an awareness of our own finitude and a, an awareness of the, the brevity of life is is key to making life rich and making life worthwhile. So yeah, everyone you love will die. I wrote as this children's poem to my to my kids. I posted it on Facebook back when I was on Facebook. And my friend Naomi um like I love this so I did some pictures I I like effectively she illustrated it and she goes I, I illustrated this so I could use it with my own kids and I said well now we've got words and we've got pictures like we have a book so we, <laughs> we're, we're a publisher away from a book here yeah so we um we put it on kickstarter and kickstarter made it their like editor whatever pick of the day or whatever and so we got funded in like a day, but you know, I mean, look, nothing grand, like got funded enough to print a couple hundred copies and give them to our friends. 
Um, but it was, you had, you had me at funded in a day. You know, that's fine. I, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's was, better than that's better than ninety nine point nine percent of all of us. So that's cool. Yeah, so it was a neat it was a neat little project that I'm glad people are still discovering. And so that was when your kids are, were uh, fairly young, and I, I love the family photos you post online. I mean, they're just the, the cutest little, most adorable family you can think of. Uh, but knowing that your kids, you know, as they get older, they're they're predisposed to all the same biases that we tackle, right? So as an act, as an expert in the field, how do you prepare them? I mean, when do you start and how do you compare the lessons you've learned to them? I mean, obviously you've done, you've done some of that work already with the, the early children's book, but as they get older, what, what do you think? How does that, uh, how does that shake out? So we try, how do I, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just sound pretentious. Like we treat dinner like we try and te- treat the dinner table like a salon, like a forum, right? We try and have good conversations with our kids at the dinner table, which is about the only time we're, you know, all together consistently and just kind of naturally help them to clarify their own thinking, to question their own assumptions, to try and be specific about where they got certain ideas from. Uh, to try and get them to to challenge us and, and and you know push back on us as as appropriate, and so um, you know Shrink's kids are famously <laughs> like you know, famously poorly behaved. So we'll see how my <laughs> we'll see how my kids turn out. So far, they're lovely, uh, but you know we really are trying to to educate them. And really, there's even some really good, there's some really good children's programming. I'm going to space the name of some of it, but like Brain Games is very good. Like there's, there's different uh, programming around, um, you know, uh, around the mind and how it works. That's uh, very easy for kids to grasp. And then I think travel, it's been hard uh, for the last couple of years, but travel, I think is another is another sort of natural way to drop your kids in a new culture, to have them ask good questions about the world around them, to have them uh, critically examine the culture in which they grew up and just ask smart questions about why things, you know, work the way they work. And so I think travel is one of the best things you can do to reduce bias and, and promote openness to experience in, in kids. Yeah. And now, So, you know, there's a lot of, you know, topics and and a lot of conversation around the concept of financial literacy. Uh, Where's the right home for behavioral finance in that context? Where does it fit and where should it start? I mean, it's clearly important. Yeah. So two two things I'll say about financial literacy. So, you know, Richard, Richard Thaler has said, and I wholeheartedly agree that, you know, he hopes that years from now, behavioral finance as a discipline won't even exist because it will be uh, it will be stupefying to think of the concept of finance or economics as being divorced from human behavior. Like I think on a long enough timeline, like the, the fact that we tease apart, you know, behavioral finance from the rest of finance as if it's not all behavioral 
is sort, <laughs> sort of, you know, is sort of a, a false distinction. It's like how we separate dental insurance from from medical insurance. It's like, oh, right. yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's a holism, right? Uh, dude, I had a toothache last year and I can tell you it's a mess your whole world up. So, yeah, it's it's part of it. So, I I hope that it will become so deeply ingrained in the idea of, of what it is to, to think about personal finance, that it just becomes a very natural extension of what's already out there. Um, in terms of the financial literacy debate, you know, I, I'll keep harping on this, this three E's, that educational layer is the base layer and it's super important, right? I mean, it's, it's foundational, but it's also necessary, but not sufficient. And we, we also know that there's very poor retention. We know from the work of Ebbinghaus that we forget about 90% of what we learn in the first like three days. And so while stuff like incorporating financial literacy classes into high school is a good start, it's certainly not a panacea. And, you know, I took four years of French and... You know, I went to Paris. I went right. I went to Paris right before COVID hit, and it was ugly. Like, I mean, you know, it was not, not super helpful. So, you know, it's it's a start. But I think the other thing we have to do is we have to bake. We have to bake in just in time education, and I think the the best technology providers are doing this. You know, you'll see where you go to sell a stock, and they go, okay. Are you sure you want to do this? Because here's the tax implications of that. And you go, oh, yeah. Like, that's a more effective intervention than giving high school or college kids, you know, a three-hour lecture on tax policy. It's like they're at the moment, at the moment of, of action, you're educating them. So I think, uh, yes, we do need financial literacy. It, of course, needs to be behaviorally informed. But even more urgently, we need uh, systems, processes, and technology that have uh, inducements for good behavior baked in. Because a lot of the technology we have currently has inducements for, for bad. Inducements for the opposite. Yeah. yeah. And so embedded, the promise of embedded finance is you know, financial literacy at the point of decision. Yeah, 100%. And yeah, so that that's a, that's a great point. So, are, as advisors, are we really qualified to serve as behavioral coaches, or is it just more realistic that we create that environment, and then we also create processes, kind of like what you've done internally, uh, you know, just to limit the ability of our lizard brain to take over? Well, I would say don't. For you know, first of all, don't underestimate the. The power of stuff like you know initiating those processes like if if that's your idea and the client wouldn't have done it otherwise then like you you don't have to have some flowery conversation to to get in the way of a bad behavior like you've done your job like if 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 the process does its job but you know the other thing i would say is that the research points to the relationship as being the fundamental determinant of whether or not a client takes a piece of advice. So every piece of rapport building and trust building and connection that an advisor does in the good times, right? Like in, in peacetime 
is building up an emotional reserve that is then drawn upon in, in wartime when, when markets are volatile and when folks want to do the wrong thing. So being a behavioral coach is not like you knowing all the right words to say or having, you know, eight years of college to, to, you know, be a deep listener or something like that. I think a lot of times it's very unsexy and it looks like you just being a good person, you being straight up, you adding value to a client's life um, and creating a level of trust. That means you can, can keep them from being their own worst enemy at the, the point of decision. And let's, let's assume that we're, we're kind of all aware of these behavioral limitations just on an individual level, not necessarily from an advisor level. Uh, I've always thought awareness is, is certainly step one in almost anything. Uh, but assuming that what, what's the goal? Are, are, beha- are, are our behavior maladies, are they something that can be cured or do we just put in place something to manage the symptoms? So I, I think there's a couple of things we can do, right? And so in, in some cases, it's going to be a, sort of an awareness of, of negative bias that causes you to do some of the things that, that I did, to like throw some roadblocks in your own way to keep you from your worst impulses. But I think it's a mistake to think about uh, behavioral finance as exclusively the study of how screwed up we are. I mean, that's kind of how it started. And that actually mirrors the progression of psychology. Like if you look at psychology as a broad discipline, psychology started with the study of, you know, why you hate your mom and, you know, like why you're just all kinds of malcontents. Yeah. 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 It's like, it started as a study of anxiety, depression, discontent, suicide, like all these sort of deviations from, from positive behavior. But in the last 30 or 40 years, we have this whole field of, of positive psychology, which is the study of what makes people great. You know, what, what makes people happy? What makes people thrive? What makes people great leaders? And so I think behavioral finance is going undergoing a similar shift. Like it, it started off as the cataloging of the hundreds of ways in which you can make dumb decisions. And that was a necessary break from traditional economics. So like I get why that had to happen. But now we're also see, seeing the study of, you know, what makes people happy? What makes people thrive? What makes people uh, feel like they have enough money? You know, what makes people more generous? And that's all part of it, too. You know, and the other thing that I would say, there's some real instances. Anytime you can roll with a behavioral tendency instead of try to push against it, you're in you're going to have a lot more success. So you think about the, the Save More Tomorrow program, which all, all it is is the the automation of of uh, withdrawing retirement savings and the automation of escalating those savings over time that's the whole that's the whole thing we're going to automatically withdraw this from your account and as you get raises we're going to take more and more um so you don't sort of live you don't sort of spend up to your new means and that has saved american investors tens of billions of dollars by playing on our tendency to be 
kind of lazy and forgetful and status quo prone. So you think about like, you, you know, we talked earlier, we're like, oh, humans are kind of lazy and status quo prone and, and forgetful. Like, yeah, that's true. But if we can lock that in, in a way that makes us richer, like, let's do it. So you have to guard against your worst impulses, but we should also be looking for ways where behavioral science can teach us, you know, what makes us happy, what makes us better, and also be thinking about, um, you know, ways we can sort of roll with the punches, so to speak. Yeah, and, and speaking of roll with the punches, I'm a suffering Rangers fan, and I, I know you're a huge baseball fan, so I thought we would get this out of the way since I, I know you're a huge Cardinals fan. We yes. have to talk about game, game six. October 2011. David Freeze here? Is this what we're talking about? Yes. Bush Stadium against my beloved and hapless Rangers. What's your most vivid memory? So I was at my buddy's house during game six. I was at my buddy's house and he had uh, young children. And so we were watching the game and his wife was getting, I think, annoyed because he had a baby. And I was kind of like, uh, he needs to go help. I'm in the way. I got to get out of here. So I say my goodbyes. I get in the car. I'm driving home and I'm listening to the game on the radio. And Freeze gets his hit. And I have never screamed so loud in my life yelling and screaming at the top of my lungs like a maniac on I-15 in Salt Lake City, Utah. I was out on vacation. Uh, so that is my memory of Game 6. Well, as all, all Rangers fans, we knew Chris Carpenter was pitching in Game 7. So we knew, for us, Game 6 was Game 7. If we didn't win that one, we were in trouble. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Chris and, Carpenter uh, was not going to lose Game 7 of the World Series. And when Josh Hamilton hit that home run in the 10th inning, I finally believed. I thought, oh, my God, I cannot believe it. The Rangers are actually going to win the World Series. <laughs> and then, of course, we managed to give it back in the in the 10th inning. And then as soon as Freeze hit that home run, it was you – know, uh, everybody in, in my neighborhood watched the – watched game seven, obviously, but we – none of us expected to win. <laughs> we were uh, – we, yeah. We David, thought that was our that was our chance. David Freeze and never have to buy a beer in St. Louis. That's for that's for sure. Yeah, and he and he probably should be really careful when he's driving in uh, in the Arlington area. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I also understand that you're an aspiring baker. Is that is that true? So it's funny. I didn't know you were going to ask me this. I am working on a a lovely rosemary focaccia as we speak. That's <laughs> all right. Yeah, I uh, like, I mean, look, this is a very basic hobby. Like the rest of, uh, like the rest of America, I developed a baking obsession during COVID. And so, yeah, I've, I've always, um, I enjoy cooking generally and, and baking in specific. And so uh, I bake, I bake Filipino food, uh, especially with my oldest daughter. Uh, I bake cookies with my youngest daughter and, and love to cook and, my wife and I fight about who gets to cook because we both enjoy it so much. <laughs> oh, really? So what, what's your, what's your favorite thing about it? What, what do you kind of, is it relaxing to you? Is it, yes. is there a little bit of a challenge to it or what, what is it? It's uh it's a, uh, it's meditative to me. Like it's um, all, it, it's meditative. It's, it's not work and it's not laziness. I feel like, a, you know, a lot of what I do is, 
work, 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 work. And then at night kind of like crash and watch Netflix or whatever. So things like, um, things like baking, things like playing the guitar, things like going on walks in nature, uh, to me are not quite Netflix, but not quite work. And they're kind of a lovely, uh, space. Wow, in between. I got it. And then, uh, so are you the kind of guy who follows the recipe or are you, are you so, incapable of following it? Do you, you, do you have to add your own twist to it? No, no. So with, um, with baking for sure. Yes. For with baking, I'm definitely, I definitely follow the recipe with cooking. No. And I kind of, uh, I treat it a bit like chopped. I, my, I'm at my best when the groceries are kind of low, you know, Oh really? Okay. (laughs) I'm kind of at my best when it's, it's getting a little random in the, in the pantry and you're like, ah, we got some, you know, some mushrooms and some cranberries and some spaghetti. Like what are we going to do? So yeah, it's, uh, (laughs) that's, I, I pride myself on being clutch in that respect. When things are kind of dicey, I can, I can kind of make a miracle. Oh, that's cool. Let's talk about recipes. Let's talk about the recipe between automation and customization. All right. Because I I think in in our world, most plans are missing the right combination of both of these. I I see a lot of people that have a a huge uh, amount of automation and no customization in their plans and and the reverse. What do you think is the right recipe for that? Well, so uh, I think... I think what's important is, I think customization is important, but I think what's equally important is felt customization on the part of the client. So I think the client, uh, I'm not taking away the, the actual benefits to a customized plan, but I think it's equally important to convey to a client that their plan has been customized and that's why I'm really high on things like direct indexing. You know, there will people who will say, well, you know, direct indexing is just like, you know, whatever. This is just like SMAs for the masses. And, and while that might be true at a functional perspective, uh, at a psychological perspective, someone knowing and understanding that, that uh, an allocation was created specifically for them and their preferences and their needs is a, is a powerful thing. So I think it's, I think it's important to customize, but I, I think it's equally important to communicate that level of customization. Um, you know, I, this is sort of a silly analogy, but we, we spent a summer in, in Pennsylvania and we took the kids to the Hershey like chocolate factory thing. And uh-huh. they, have, they have this thing where you can, you know, design your own candy bar. And I mean, look, it's, you got like three options. It's like, you know, dark milk, white, and then, you know, you put a little couple of things in. There's, there's not a ton of permutations. My kids would all tell you it's the greatest, the greatest thing they've ever eaten, you know, because they got to pick out, you know, the white chocolate. They got to pick out the sprinkles, whatever. It's, it's like a hundred candy bars they've had before and since. Uh, but, but the element of customization made their experience different. And I think it's just as true in our business. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've always thought that customization promotes value and ownership. Yes. Uh, and automation, or automation promotes uh, reliability. Sure. And so if you can, if you can marry the two, I've always thought that was a, 
that was a benefit for everyone. Not that, uh, you know, it just seems like there's a lot of people that are either in the automation camp or the customization camp. And I, I don't fall into that because I, I think there's benefits to both. Well, I, um, you know, to your, to your point, I don't even see them as mutually exclusive. Like I think, you know, there's a ton of behavioral benefit to be had from automation, right. And just, and just following simple rules, but those rules can conform to an individual client's needs and preferences. And so I, I think you, could marry them up quite easily I think did we just create a business james did we just start a business oh i gosh i hope not i, I don't have any extra time in my day now so yeah, that's if, a good point if, if oh. we did if we did dr dan it's all yours baby i'll stick with the bread <laughs> just send me a very very small royalty and i'll be i'll be fine with it so and i understand orion's working on a tool to help couples have more productive uh conversations about money yeah, I'm really excited about this. So it's it's based on some research I did into, you know, eff- effectively what do couples fight about when they fight about money? So, you know, Carl Jung has this great quote that I'll butcher here, but it's, uh, you know, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. I actually think I got it. I think but, you nailed you know, it. The, the idea is that until we illuminate salient differences between two people, you know, my wife's going to go, oh, you know, Daniel's like this. And I'm going to say, you know, oh, she's like this. And we're going to see that as a flaw in the other person. But what we did is we did research and there were these different dimensions that emerged and they're not good or bad. So I'll give you the one, I'll give you the one that elicited the most uh, fierce fighting And it was, you know, it was, is money best used to secure, um, to enjoy today or to secure tomorrow? They're both important, right? They're, They're both important, but people have a, tend to have a strong preference for one over the other. And if your spouse is out of preference, right? Like if, if my preference is to enjoy today and my wife's preference is to secure tomorrow, we look at each other judgmentally. You know, she says I'm irresponsible. I say she's no fun. And so what we've tried to do here is illuminate these differences, give people a non-pejorative way to, to think about and talk about each other and uh, to, to understand each other better and to work for harmony and to sort of strive for that middle ground. Um, because I think advisors, you know, insofar as depending on who you ask, conflict about money is the number one cause of divorce in in North America. So, you know, or sometimes it's number two, but it's a big deal, right? And I think it's a a place where advisors can add value outside of the traditional scope of work. And how much do you think is the, the prevalence of dual careers, the, you know, access to information and different types of information, you know, blended families, all those things. I mean, how much do those add to the struggle uh, of couples communications? Is it, is it just kind of an ancillary effect or is, is the way couples have to communicate today just different than the way it was maybe 20 years ago? Well, there's, there's, there's certainly, you know, there's certainly complicating, there's, there's certainly a, a, a million complicating factors, but I'll say that the biggest thing is we tend to uncritically adopt 
the money scripts of the people by whom we were raised, right? Like, you know, the, the house I grow up in forms my basis of, of how I think about money and the, the house that my partner grows up in forms how, how she thinks about money. Then we get together and it's kind of worlds colliding and we've never questioned it's an in of one meeting an in of one. Like we've, we've both had a singular experience. We're bringing those together. These fish don't know they're wet. And then I go, Oh, she thinks about this differently than me. That's dumb. Like, you know, that's wrong. And we haven't always had the, the language uh, to, to think about, to articulate or to question our own experiences with money. And so that's why I think this is a valuable framework for that. Because I think, you know, all that other stuff aside, I think we just, we form opinions about money that are largely unexamined and that are strongly tied to things like love of family. And uh, that's, that's a recipe for, for conflict in some ways. Yeah. And do you think that uh, those conversations evolve over time? I mean, is there a, I know what, for instance, when my wife and I got back from our honeymoon, we went to the, to the bank to see how much money we had left. And it was like, I think it was like $26. I mean, so, you know, we could have had very different visions, monetary visions, but we didn't have enough money for to really, you know, spend a lot of time on. We could have just gone to dinner and we'd been down to zero. So yeah, it, it wasn't like top of mind. It wasn't a powerful conversation to have and, and feel like what our differences are. But, you know, as, you know, as you get older, as you have kids, as you, as you accumulate assets, as you get two different careers, two different retirements, you know, one person has stock options, one person doesn't, it would seem to me that that conversation has to fundamentally change and be reevaluated over time. And and we talk all the time in our business about reevaluating someone's risk tolerance and and updating their net worth, but we never really talk about, or at least I don't see where we're talking about updating the conversations they have based on where they are in their lives and what's going on now. So it's, it's a great point. And I have a, a nearly identical story. You know, I took my wife out for a, for a nice dinner. And when, when we got engaged and I, you know, I proposed at this, like outside of this sort of five-star resort dinner place. And I got back and I had $12 left. <laughs> left. It would not have, it would not have cleared if she, no, no, we call that victory. Yeah, thank God she didn't order dessert because I would have like it could have gone the other way. But um, <laughs> you know, if if you had asked me early in early in our early in our marriage, right? I, I have a I have a specific memory. We lived in Hawaii right after we got married, which was a tough gig. But like we lived we lived in Hawaii right after we got married. My wife's hair dryer broke, and we we could not afford to replace it. I mean, we didn't have the whatever, 50 bucks or whatever a hairdryer cost to to replace it. And so it was like, you know, hey, you got to you got to dry your hair in the Hawaiian sun for a couple of weeks until we can, you know, get back there. <laughs> and, you know, that was very top of mind. Like our conversations were around those sorts of things. Now we're in a different place. Our money scripts have changed. Our realities have changed. And now it's about stuff like kids and and, you know, supporting aging family members and things like that. So uh, this this thing we're rolling out called the Money 20 is brand new. But I think I think we will absolutely have to use it iteratively and we'll definitely have to check 
back in with people as they, you know, move through the lifespan. Yeah, well, we're looking forward to seeing this summer uh, summer release. Is that what you're targeting? Oh my gosh, I I don't even. I'll get killed by the devs if I promise anything. I I don't. Okay, know. I'll, I'll I'll probably go back and edit that out. But I I'll, I'll just let yeah. let the record let let the record show you didn't promise a delivery date. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, Doctor Crosby, I thank you so much. I'm going to leave you with one more question. One of the things I love about your work is, and I've tried to read as much you know on this topic as I can. Uh, but I love the practical nature of your advice. I mean, you, within almost everything that you write, you, you commit to these, you know, the top 10 list in, you know, you know, in the laws of wealth and you have the top three things you've got to do. I mean, they're actionable, practical items that somebody can take away. So I felt like it wouldn't be fair to the listeners if I didn't ask you to give us two takeaways that you know people can take away from this podcast if they happen to listen to it and maybe work that into their mindset to become just better investors better financial stewards yeah so you know i'll uh, i'll say two things the the first thing is an object in motion tends to stay in motion and an object at rest tends to stay at rest so james clear has written this zillion selling book atomic habits that's all about changing behavior. And one of his favorite uh, takeaways, one of my favorites of takeaways of his from the book is this thing called the ten, two minute rule, right? So if you want to run a marathon while you're currently watching Netflix, right? So you, you got to get up and be active for two minutes, right? And then you, you go do the next two minutes. The next day you do the next two minutes and it gets a little harder till soon you're walking 10 miles, then you're running five miles, then you're running 10 miles, then you run a half marathon. One of the things that we do that is so destructive to behavior change is to try to swing for the fences. So if, if people are looking to make a change to the way that they operate with money, pick the most infinitesimally small change you can think of, make that change. When you do it, pat yourself on the back, reward yourself, and make another change that's 10% harder than that. Don't shoot for the million dollar, you know, the, the, the million dollar business right out of the gate. Don't shoot for the marathon right out of the gate. Get, get the flywheel turning, get the behavior change rolling, and that's going to help a lot. The second thing I would say, this one covers so many uh, ills in terms of financial behavior, is work with a professional. Uh, the research is is unequivocal that that people who work with a financial advisor uh, not only do they tend to do dramatically better in terms of their performance for behavioral reasons, they're also more ready for an emergency. They're happier. They have happy higher life satisfaction. They even have better communication between partners between romantic partners. Money. Uh, is the number one stressor for American families and has been for every year since since the American Psychological Association has started measuring this. If you can get someone in your corner to help you with your money, all this other stuff falls in place. So, you know, get your own behavior, financial or otherwise, moving in a good direction incrementally, and then get someone on your team who you can trust uh, because when you get your money right, a lot of other stuff gets right too. Wow. Well, it was, uh, it was awesome to have you on and thank you so much for spending some time with us. Uh, good luck on all the stuff that you're doing at Orion and, uh, 
We'll talk soon. Thanks so much. My pleasure. And that's a wrap for our latest episode of A Voice from the Hills podcast with our special guest, Daniel Crosby. Thanks again to Dr. Crosby for joining us. We covered a smorgasbord of behavioral finance with a side helping of uh, baking and baseball. So it was really cool. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed it. Uh, if you'd like to check out any of uh, Dr. Crosby's works, all of his published works are available online. You can uh, easily find them through a, a Google search on the Internet. Uh, Dr. Crosby is also very active and responsive uh, on various social media platforms. So if you'd like to uh, follow him, please do so. Uh, if you'd like to uh, follow our program in A Voice from the Hills, you can listen on uh, Apple Podcast, Spotify, YouTube, pretty much anywhere you uh, you currently listen to, to podcasts or engage in that type of content. Uh, or you can also listen, uh, you can access the uh, episodes and past episodes that we have uh, on our website at Silicon Hills Wealth. Again, uh, thank you for Dr. Crosby for joining us. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed it uh, as much as we did. And, you know, thank you for listening because, you know, we can only do our best work if you are here to listen.